Welcome to the Mormon program, where we get more out of our faith because we know it's not about what we seek, but how we seek it. Let's talk about Buddhism. It's one of the Dharmic religions, which include Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, and Jainism. Hinduism is the oldest of these four, so the other three branched off of Hinduism. Because Buddhism broke away from Hinduism about a thousand years after Hinduism sprouted, Buddhism shares a lot in common with its predecessor. As I've studied the Dharmic religions, I've been impressed at their acceptance of moral and religious nuance. As Westerners, we tend to insist that everything be cut, dried, organized, categorized. If there is ambiguity, we fill those gaps with assumptions and end up heaping doctrine upon doctrine until the entire edifice of belief becomes so unwieldy that it's impracticable and you're left wondering when the thing will simply topple. Eastern traditions are lean, they're adaptable, and they maneuver complexities with you instead of fighting against you or etching lines in the sand that you dare not cross. Paradox is a part of religion that we ignore in the West because it makes us feel double-minded and at variance with ourselves. So we try to convince ourselves morality is simple so we don't have to bear the cognitive dissonance of that delicate balance. But in other parts of the world, paradox is embraced. Rousseau said, I'd rather be a man of paradox than of prejudice. It's not double-dealing in the East to hold in dynamic tension two thoughts that at first glance can't be combined. They would argue paradox is something more like balance than conflict, harmony, not hypocrisy. You can have introspection without indolence. You can be passive to the pain of life and yet be awake and alert in the world. You can be a beggar, but not a burden on society. What the Buddhists call bhikshus are beggars living off the alms of others. And yet as long as these bhikshus are living such a lifestyle as a renunciation of the world, they are considered honorable for their choices. Ambiguity in the East is viewed almost positively, as though you're engaged in the unraveling of a mystery and the challenge of it is an adventure. It isn't atypical for Easterners to incorporate teachings from other faith traditions into their own personal practices or even into their orthodoxy at large. Jainism, which branched from Hinduism at about the same time Buddhism did, expands upon Hindu principles and incorporates what they call anekantavada, or in English, many-pointedness. The concept is that no single creed, no matter how well-intended or even how broad, can possibly contain all of the truth to be found on the earth. They consider it such a huge error to uphold any one belief or set of beliefs as absolute that they have a word, ekanta, specifically devoted to this great error. Sikhism, which split from Hinduism only relatively recently, around the 15th century, is similarly warm toward outside traditions. Their holy book, the Adi Granth, incorporates in its over 1,400 pages writings from Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Christianity. The many-mindedness of the Easterners is exactly what makes them so immune to evangelizing, much to the chagrin of the missionaries so many Western factions deploy to the East. 
Answering why Christianity didn't succeed in converting India, journalist Tony Joseph wrote, Christianity, perhaps for the first time, came up against a philosophy that didn't persecute other faiths. They didn't find the Christian Messiah and his teachings objectionable at all, but they also didn't find them exceptional. Close quote. The Eastern mindset takes on life like 1 Thessalonians 5.19, which says, Don't stifle new concepts and predictions. Test all things with which you're presented, then reject what is evil and accept what is good. It's a similar concept to don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and eat the fish by keeping the meat and spitting the bones. In the West, we tend to throw out entire ideologies the minute we suss out a bone instead of doing the work of sifting what's good from what's bad. But that's exactly why evangelizing works here. As the Theophilanthropist by Thomas Paine once ranted, the teachers of religion of all denominations assume an arrogant, dictatorial style in order to convince their followers that they are in possession of the secrets of heaven. People are loyal to groups and deeply committal here in the West because we identify ourselves in groups and with labels. All you have to do is convince someone that there are no bones in your faction, that your group is beyond reproach. And by the time the person starts to see the bones, the skeletons all churchgoers have in their closets, and the skeletons the whole religion has in its closet, the person has already made all the life changes necessary for assimilation, so it's too late for buyer's remorse. All he can do now is dig in his heels and use fanaticism, indignation, and deliberate ignorance to defend his costly decisions. Elder Uchtdorf once warned, We exercise poor judgment sometimes, thinking that because something makes sense or is convenient, it must be true. Conversely, we reject truth because it would require us to change or admit that we were wrong. You see this behavior from sectarians all the time, and not just religious sectarians, but also political and philosophical sectarians. But there's a better way. Carl Jung says fanaticism is only repressed doubt. George Santayana says fanaticism is redoubling your efforts when you've forgotten your aim. We don't have to be religious fanatics in defense of our decisions, doubling down on all the many reasons our church is the superior one or the true one, patting ourselves on the back tremulously that we've done life right. Thessalonians 5 has already told us what we do if we're presented with new information that's foreign or that stokes the flames of doubt. We fearlessly engage with the new information, accepting any goodness and rejecting any evil. Any new goodness garnered by such an exploration could only add to what we already have anyway. The prophet Joseph told us, truth is made manifest by proving contraries. If that's the case, Buddhism and all the other world religions have much to teach us. This is exactly the sort of headspace the Easterners practice and approve. I've mentioned the open-mindedness of the Jains and the Sikhs, but to be fair, it's not just the groups who fractured off of Hinduism that exercise such openness. Hindus themselves are very vocal about unifying across the entire religious spectrum. Gandhi, perhaps the most famous Hindu of the last century, famously said, I hold that it is the duty of every man and woman to read sympathetically the scriptures of the world. If we expect others to respect our religion, we must be willing to respect theirs. 
That quote reminds me of Brittany Lowe Hartley, the LDS author and podcaster. She says, we get so offended, especially during the missionary phase of our lives, when people shut the door to us, but then when presented with the faith claims of others, we slam the door. In the spirit of Eastern openness, this Westerner will be devoting her next few episodes to Buddhism and Hinduism, and I hope you understand I'm not encouraging the Latter-day Saints of the world to jump ship and join these other faiths. We don't have to surrender any of our Mormonism to accept truth from whence it will come. It could be argued that such an exploration makes us better and truer Mormons. Joseph Smith famously said, we should gather up all the good and true principles of the world and treasure them up, or we shall not come out true Mormons. There are a few concepts in Buddhism that the West has misinterpreted like karma and yoga. Karma really just means selfless service. We tend to think of that boomerang effect of karma, do good and you'll receive good or do bad and it'll return to you, but that's a rather superstitious view. And if you do good in that case, it's tit for tat. It's transactional. You're only currying the favor of fate or the fondness of the gods. In the same way that a Latter-day Saint would be offended if you were to suggest that they only fulfill the duties of their calling to be honored in their ward or praised of the world, in the East, karmic actions come from the heart and they would not welcome the Western interpretation of karma as good things you selfishly do to improve your station in this life or the next. 19th century Indian teacher Swami Vivekananda says every act of charity, every good deed, even every thought of sympathy or compassion toward another diminishes your self-importance. As we take the proper actions in the world, we are reduced and reduced until at last we become the lowest and the least. So karma is not intended to elevate. It's more like a method you could use in conjunction with asceticism, meditation, self-denial, prayer, to bring yourself to a place of spiritual poverty. Matthew 5.3 mentions poorness of spirit, and Luke 12.21 calls poorness of spirit richness toward God. If karma improves anything, what it increases and increases is a person's knowledge and glory. Buddhists believe in exaltation, just like Latter-day Saints do, and they believe it's a long process. Eastern holy books would say the spirit evolves upward. They think this evolution comes about by reincarnation, or what some Latter-day Saints would call plural probations, a term that was gaining traction with the early saints until Joseph's death unfortunately extinguished treatment of the subject. Reincarnation is depicted in pop culture as fickle, as the transmigration of a human spirit into, say, the body of a panda or a butterfly, but that's not exactly how it works. Nor would it be appropriate to assume that karmic good works can improve your temporal station in this life or the next. The assumption that good karma in this life will mean you'll be reborn with greater wealth or talent or beauty in the next life makes karma selfish action aimed at exchanging good works for future material benefits. Real karma seeks to improve one's spiritual station. As you move through your mortal lives, engaged in the karma of selfless service, you'll accumulate knowledge and glory, and each new mortal iteration will add increase until you're ready to lift out of mortal life entirely and become something like a god. In Eastern parlance, they would call this lifting moksha. 
In LDS parlance, we would call this lifting translation. If you lift out of your mortality while still on the earth, or we would call it resurrection to a greater glory, a terrestrial or celestial glory, if you attain your reward after death. The concept of karmic action elevating you spiritually over time reminds me of DNC 5024. That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. All the major Eastern religions believe in ahimsa, a Sanskrit word meaning non-injury. They squabble about how far to take the concept of ahimsa. Many of them simply choose vegetarianism as an expression of non-injury, while others are such staunch observers of ahimsa that even before COVID, they were in the habit of wearing medical masks to make sure they don't accidentally swallow a gnat. The Jains tend to be on the extreme end of the spectrum. Many of them will walk with a push broom to sweep out of the way ants and other bugs that would otherwise become trampled underfoot. Easterners are very dedicated to causing as little suffering in the world as possible because out of the interconnectedness and brotherliness that we all share, they see others as an extension of self. The concept of an individuated self is actually something they don't support. They call the human obsession with self delusional. They recognize that on this mortal plane we can indulge in the delusion of self because we haven't learned interpenetrating love yet, but they would consider a sense of self impermanent, which is a no-no word in their vernacular. They're really big on figuring out which parts of life will go with us to the next life, and those are the elements of life they consider permanent. The rest, they really just call distraction and delusion, and they work diligently to jettison the impermanent parts of the self. That painstaking shedding of the lower self is essentially the basis of Buddhism. They think as we work to transcend self, we'll achieve the same interfusion of love already being modeled by the Godhead. And the Hindus do believe in a Godhead, the Buddhists do not, but the Buddhists believe in something like a divine community. So that's close enough. All the Eastern traditions believe if we can transcend self, we'll qualify for the next realm where we will enjoy a brotherliness we can scarcely imagine here because this is a dog-eat-dog world obsessed with individuality, contrast, and distinction instead of the higher-minded and heavenly synergy, commonality, and cohesion. We know that the word Elohim means the gods. To refer to the highest god in a singular form, you would need to use the word Eloah. There must be some reason we never call him that, and that reason is perhaps that they are all one. It would be silly to treat Eloah singularly because the gods enjoy interpenetrating and substitutive love. Christ was a substitute for God in the flesh. Christ told us that familiarity with the one will lead invariably to familiarity with the other. So... The Elohim, the gods, are so intertwined that to refer to one separately takes them out of context. The LDS author Fiona Givens actually says we need to change the pronoun we use for God. Instead of he, we should be saying they. The Elohim is a group of people. We know it's a Godhead at a minimum. We know the rest of us are welcome to join in their love. So when we exalt to such a station as to join with them, whether that happens in this life or the next, could it be that we qualify for what the Buddhists call moksha, where we get swallowed up into heaven and folded into the Elohim? That's what reportedly happened to Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. There are certainly humans in Christian lore who have qualified for something like this privilege as well. 
as indicated by 2 Kings 2.11, Alma 45.19, and Moses 7.69. Entire groups of people, Enoch's people, Melchizedek's people, as recorded in JST Genesis 14.34, have been swallowed up into heaven, in the flesh, prior to death. So, to have such a goal as to sit under the Bodhi tree like the Buddha and get swallowed up in enlightenment sounds phenomenal or exceptional or fantastic. But stories like these are not myth. For sure, religion is rife with metaphor. But other stories ring so true that you can decipher fact from fiction. And just because we consider Buddhism an ancient religion, maybe even a heathen religion, should not put us off our effort to understand it. Joseph F. Smith said, there is not a heathen philosopher who ever lived in all the world from the beginning that enunciated a principle of truth who did not receive it from the fountainhead from God himself. It's interesting that we actually have more in common with Buddhists than we realize. The Buddhists, just like Latter-day Saints, believe in exaltation. They believe mortals can become gods, except they call it by a different name. They call it Buddhahood instead of Godhood. They don't believe in any central god, but instead a community of the exalted. But that's not different from LDS belief, because we know the godhead is already something like a community. They believe in heaven, but there are actually many heavens and many hells. Just like in Christianity, these heavens and hells can be depicted as places or realms, but technically they're more like states of mind. In LDS parlance, we would probably say something like, you're clothed in the next life with the body befitting your glory. Whereas in Buddhism, they would say something like, eternal consciousness takes on different forms and moves through different realities. Either way, you can see we have more in common where it counts with the Buddhists than we even have with some of our Christian brothers and sisters. James E. Talmadge told us, Mormonism proclaims something more than a heaven and a hell. It affirms the existence of an infinite range of graded intelligences, so it claims the widest and fullest gradation of conditions of future existence. Close quote. The goal of mortal life in Buddhist thought is to reach nirvana, which means extinguished. And so to become extinguished, all your mortal attachments have been destroyed. All the illusory appetites and distractions of the world that occupy us mortally disappear as we spiritually advance into godhood. So while in most Christian traditions we stack principle upon principle, in Buddhism they kind of do the opposite. Their path to godhood is paved by removal or extinguishing. They would probably opine that all you have to do for truth to reveal itself is get out of its way. As you remove your biases and all the false traditions you've been taught by society or by your family or your culture, the truth will simply reveal itself. Yoga is a Buddhist concept that has taken on a life of its own in the West, and it's little more than a workout here. But in the East, yogas are a bunch of spiritual practices meant to connect mind, body, and spirit. The Hindus and Buddhists believe that certain yogic practices can help you integrate yourself, and most of these yogas actually have nothing to do with the body. Raja yoga, nana yoga, bhakti yoga, karma yoga, these are yogic practices having to do with study, scripture, with mind, with prayer, and with proper action. The word yoga simply means path. Some people consider the yogas rivulets releasing into the giant river that takes you downstream metaphorically to enlightenment. So as you navigate the many rivulets, you eventually wend your way downstream. And the asana and hatha yogas, which are the more physical yogas, are really just small chapters within overall yogic practice. 
But since they've been so singled out and emphasized here in the West, what comes to mind when we hear yoga is strange poses and stretchy pants. Let's talk Buddhist vocabulary. We've already been through some of these. Buddha means awakened one. The Buddhist holy book is the Dhammapada, meaning path of truth. The unending cycle of death and rebirth and mortal life is called samsara, but eventually one progresses by spiritual evolution to a place of enlightenment, and then what they call moksha, or nirvana, which are similar, if not synonymous. Nirvana means extinguished, and moksha means liberated. So maybe it would be most accurate to say once you achieve enlightenment, you qualify for moksha, which lifts you out of mortal samsara, and into the spiritual state of nirvana. Certain rituals and practices can accelerate the process of enlightenment and lead to heightened spiritual awareness, such as meditation, mantras, mudras, and yogas. Mudras are the symbolic gestures you see depicted in Eastern art. Their hands are positioned to convey different meanings. The most commonly known mudras are the Anjali and the Nana mudras. Anjali is the greeting mudra used for hellos and goodbyes. So at the conclusion of a yoga session, people will make the gesture by joining their palms together in what looks like prayer hands, and then they'll combine the mudra with the word namaste, meaning greetings or salutations. The nana mudra joins the tip of the index finger with the thumb in what looks to an American like the A-OK hand gesture. The nana mudra is said to open the mind to wisdom. So you'll see this mudra during meditation sometimes. Maybe while a person is seated in the lotus position, that cross-legged pose we all know. Other mudras symbolize virtues like charity, courage, or self-denial. Buddhist love lists. The Eightfold Path is a list of virtues and practices conducive to enlightenment. The eight elements of the path are mindfulness, concentration, effort, livelihood, action, speech, perception, and intention. The Four Noble Truths distill Buddha's teachings into four essential principles. The four noble truths are one, that life is suffering, that suffering ranges from daily inconveniences and competing demands on our time to hugely traumatic painful events, but not a day passes without some form of suffering. Truth two has to do with the cause of suffering and Buddha explains that it's our own desires and attachments that give rise to suffering. Because even if we have no power over our circumstances, we do have power over our responses to adversity. Truth three is about ending suffering by overcoming it. And truth four says if you walk the eightfold path, you will surpass suffering. You'll be freed from the continuous cycle of death and rebirth that they call samsara. Dharma is a principle very difficult to explain. Dharma is defined variously as doctrine, duty, and moral responsibility, it seems that dharma can be applied personally and collectively. On the collective level, dharma looks something like doctrine that we all ought to follow. On the personal level, dharma is much more tailor-made, and it looks something like one's own individual serendipity, fate, or life plan. On the personal level, dharma changes over time. It could be your dharma or your calling to parent a child for one season of your life, but then in the second half of life, your dharma could dramatically shift to accommodate completely different goals. Some of the symbols of Buddhism are really interesting. The more recognizable symbols are the lotus and the dharma wheel. The wheel is called a dharma chakra, 
and its eight spokes represent the eightfold path. The lotus is a symbol of purity, enlightenment, and rising above the world. The roots of a lotus are immersed in yucky, dirty water, but the lotus blooms lovely and fragrant above the level of the water. A Zen verse says, may we live in muddy water with purity, like the lotus. In this verse, the muddy water represents our impure human nature and a world steeped in sin. The lotus represents the exalted station of a person above every passion, pain, and impulse. The lesser known symbols of Buddhism are the Naga, meaning the dragon or snake, the swastika, and the endless knot. The endless knot represents the interconnectedness of all things and is illustrated by a closed cluster of right-angled interconnected lines. Each interconnected right-angled section taken individually looks like a swastika, which is another holy symbol to both Buddhists and Hindus. Swastikas are etched and painted onto door jams and entryways as a sign of welcome to visitors. Because the swastika rotates and could be perceived as branching forever outward, it has been associated with the sun and its rays, with eternal life, and with the infinity of creation. The swastika enjoyed a renewed popularity in the 19th century despite being such an ancient symbol, a symbol reportedly found carved into mammoth tusks as far back as 15,000 years ago. Because of growing European and American interest in the ancient Near East cultures, the symbol was requisitioned for the jerseys of sports teams, in magazines like the Ladies Home Journal. Rudyard Kipling loved the piece of the symbol and included it on book covers, and even Coca-Cola brandished it on advertisements. German archaeologist Heinrich Schleimann became infatuated with the symbol during an excavation in 1868 on the site of ancient Troy, and he linked it to a proto-Indo-European migration, speculating that the symbol must have been significant to what he called his remote ancestors, thus popularizing the swastika in Germany from whence Hitler took it on as the emblem of the Third Reich. This appropriation severed the symbol from its historical context, imbuing it with evil instead of peace, and now, of course, the symbol will be forever associated with its misuse instead of its original use. In the East, however, most people still display the symbol undeterred. The symbol of the dragon, or the snake, is called the Naga. The snake was anciently associated with wisdom. It's only in the West that we vilify the snake, which is too bad, because if we consider the fall from the Garden of Eden to have been a fortunate fall, then the tempting serpent helped bring it about, and we actually do have him to thank, at least in part, for the ensuing wisdom that enabled Eve to multiply and replenish the earth. The snake is venerated in the East. It is said that many creatures would come to the aid of the Buddha when he was deeply in the throes of meditation to help shield him against the elements. The Naga, a seven-headed cobra, flared out the hoods of his many heads to make an umbrella over Buddha when the rains came. One day, so engrossed in meditation that he was completely heedless of his surroundings, Buddha's bald head grew hot under the scorching rays of the sun. 108 snails came to his defense this time, climbing onto his head to form something like a protective hat. When you see depictions of the Buddha with his odd bumpy hat. I'm sure the first thing you think of is snail martyrs, but I thought I'd explain that just in case. His ears are also strange to Western perception because the earlobes are so long. Because the Buddha was wealthy during his youth, he would have worn heavy, expensive stones and jewels in his pierced earlobes. 
When Buddha renounced the world and became enlightened, he left behind his worldly treasures, but his earlobes remained forever stretched. I'll get into the teachings of the Dhammapada and the history of Buddhism in a moment, but first let's talk a bit about how Buddhists view life and death. For this analysis, I'll defer to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, basically an instruction manual for mortals as to how to prepare for death and even what to do after we die. Sogyal Rinpoche says of death, when we're freed from the body that has defined and dominated our understanding of ourselves for so long, our spirit is liberated. Stripped of its body, the spirit after death stands naked, revealed startlingly for what it has always been, the architect of our reality. Rinpoche here is arguing that consciousness isn't born, it can't die, it existed from time immemorial, and will continue to echo into the future. The Buddhists see the body as a temporary guest house for consciousness. According to the Book of the Dead, understanding death helps us appreciate the fragility and impermanence of life and shifts our mindset away from, quote, matters that are inconsequential to developing the wisdom and courage necessary for a fearless and meaningful life, close quote. Buddhism teaches that there's a lag time of 49 days before the consciousness of the recently deceased will be reborn into the world. During those 49 days, the consciousness navigates the afterworld, sometimes with guides alongside them, seeking the best opportunity for rebirth according to their particular glory, or what the author calls their karmic profile. A consciousness will gravitate toward a body that matches his or her brightness or dullness. For this reason, it's important to develop your karmic profile as much as possible while in mortality so that you seek in the afterworld the clearest, brightest light for your next habitation. If enlightenment was not achieved on the earth, the deceased person is not without hope. As the author puts it, at the time of death, those who prepared themselves will recognize the clear light as a projection of themselves, and this recognition will lead to enlightenment. Those who have not prepared, says the text, will be confounded by the transition from embodied to bodiless, and will run the risk of being helplessly blown into the next lifetime. Anthropologist Walter Evan Wentz says of this post-mortal confusion, To all who are weeping, thou wilt say, Here I am, weep not, but they will not hear thee. Then thou wilt be driven hither and thither, and thine intellect, having no object upon which to rest, will be like a feather tossed about by the wind, ceaselessly and involuntarily wandering about. To guard against such a frightful post-mortal experience, Buddhists believe we ought to be carefully working with our consciousness while in mortality, training it to look beyond the material world. When untrained, our consciousness will attach to and identify with our brain and our body, and we will mistake ourselves for these things, viewing the world through a lens of scarcity and limitation, individuality and separation, instead of through a lens of plenty, of generosity, interconnection, and communal love. The realization that the material world is the illusory world and that the spiritual world, however numinous, is the real world, seems completely out of order to our mortal minds. If we do not understand that life is a dream, we will continue to be reborn until we come to this awareness, says the author. He continues, our world is full of illusions that seem so real to us that we rarely question them. When we gaze at a star, we believe it currently exists. But the star we are viewing might have burned out hundreds or thousands of years ago. Because of its vast distance from the earth, 
it takes that span of time for its light to travel close enough for us to observe it. The world around us is colorful. The grass is green, the sky is blue, there are red sports cars and black cats. These things, however, are actually colorless. Light has various colored wavelengths, red, yellow, green, and blue. When light shines on an object, those wavelengths that are not absorbed by the object will reflect off the object. A red sports car appears red because all the wavelengths except red are absorbed by the car. The red is then reflected off the car and perceived by the human eye, giving the impression that the car is red. This planet is round and constantly in motion, yet we experience the world as motionless and flat. Most importantly of all, your brain is unable to distinguish between imagination and reality. The brain reacts the same to a rose you visualize in your mind as it does to a real rose you encounter in the garden. Close quote. A person seduced by the sensory experience of the physical body is considered undisciplined to Buddhist thinking. It's by integrating the mind, body, and spirit, and by making the mind and the body answerable to the spirit, that we succeed in detaching from the illusions of the world. We tend to identify deeply with our individuality, with our sense of self, but realistically there's no such thing as self. The human body is made up of components most people would consider not very human. Some of the same elements found in stars are found in the body. Bodily fluids have a similar composition to seawater. The body can't exist without rain or clouds or the sun. The body's genes contain genetic material from ancestors far removed from the present moment from humans, plants, and animals over three billion years in the making, only a person missing the connection between self and all other life forms could pollute the earth or cause harm to other living creatures. If we believe the purpose of the earth is to fulfill our needs, then we see the earth as separate from self when really the earth is part of self and self is part of the earth. One can't harm the earth without harming self and one can't harm another without harming self. The mind is similarly interconnected. So often we think of ourselves as the author of our thoughts, but our minds are like cell phones picking up signals from cell towers and satellites. Every thought we have feeds into the collective consciousness. Certainly we have influence over our thoughts, but an unseen maelstrom of interference is constantly at work on the human mind. Half the time, the thoughts we think we're originating are only thoughts we are subconsciously accessing from the collective informational field. Truly, all things are more connected than our ego self, that lower self within us tugging on our sleeve to constantly indulge it, would want us to believe. It could take a lifetime to release that sense of self we're gripping so tightly, but as David Foster Wallace put it, everything I ever let go had claw marks in it. If you enjoyed this episode, please find us on Facebook or feel free to reach out to us at mormonprogram at gmail.com. That's M-O-R-E-M-O-N program at gmail.com.